0: questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Following a near-death experience that prompted a personal awakening to the underlying interdimensional nature of reality, tonight's guest discusses insights into the realm of the paranormal. Ghosts, cryptids, flying saucers, and UFOnauts will analyze UFO lore its societal impact, along with the symbiotic relationship between science and science fiction. We will examine the mission of the flying saucers regarding the impending technological singularity, the advent of sentient artificial intelligence, and transhumanism, all predicted by futurists to occur sometime between 2045 and 2080, We will give you food for thought regarding Earth's UFO mystery and the ultimate cosmic destiny of humankind. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button. Join me on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Russell Brinniger. Russ was born in 1955 and spent his childhood in Titusville, Florida, on the Space Coast. He was fortunate enough to watch all the Apollo launches to the moon from a distance of about five miles across the Indian River. At the age of 17, he joined the Army for two years. and later earned a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy and has exercised that profession ever since. For the first 54 years of his life, he was a material reductionist, a hard science guy who believed that consciousness was an epiphenomenon of the brain, and that when the brain dies, every part of a person dies with it. An eternity of unconsciousness. However, on August 18, 2009, while mowing his grass, he had a heart attack along with a near-death experience that revealed the underlying multidimensional nature of reality. Since that event, Russ has diligently pursued research into the so-called paranormal. an attempt to understand exactly what happened to him that day, and over the years came to some rather shocking conclusions that are elaborated in his book, Overlords of the Singularity, the Manipulation of Humankind by Hidden UFO Intelligences, and the Quest. Russell Brininger joins us from Newcastle, Indiana. Hello, Russell. Welcome to Veritas. How are you?
1: I'm very good. Good to be here.
0: My pleasure. And Russ, I was telling you offline, you said you were sending me a book, but I expected something smaller. And this is a compliment to you because what did you not include in this book, which is filled with cases and a lot of great stuff?
1: Well, it has uh, a recap on my near-death experience, which I'll explain to your listeners. And um Following the near-death experience, which revealed the underlying interdimensional nature of reality to me personally, um, I jumped into all everything paranormal, and it wound up uh, in the book, Overlords of the Singularity. And it was a 745 page Word document. I didn't really know how to go about printing or anything, but I wound up doing it through CreateSpace. It turned out 545 pages. And yeah, if if I had to do it over again, I'd probably break it down into several smaller volumes, but um, it's my opus and I'm proud of it. And um, I've had pretty good feedback from it for the people who have taken the time to read it. It really, uh, the way it's written, it's the only UFO book a person who's unfamiliar with the field really needs to read because it's got all the classic cases in there. Um, what prompted me into this type of research and some conclusions that I came to. Sometimes, uh, having gone 54 years of, um, being one of these folks that kind of poo-pooed UFOs and, uh, Cryptids and various types of paranormal activity. Um, I can understand that viewpoint, and uh, it it will just sort of like guide somebody from the material reductionist standpoint into being open to all kinds of things.
0: You said something very interesting there. You poo pooed all this before. Isn't it interesting? A lot of people that I interview go through some kind of life changing event, where their life. And their psyche changes, and they embrace and become more open-minded to different topics. Is this what happened to you? Let's get into your story before the accident, the near-death experience. Just give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll jump into the NDE.
1: Okay. Well, I grew up in Titusville, Florida on the Space Coast, and I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, we didn't have no iPhones or nothing like that. So my big thing at the age of about eight was to collect bubblegum cards. I... uh We traded bubblegum cards like crazy out in the woods in a fort that we built. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be of age when we could just go right down to the Indian River and watch the Apollo moon rockets go off. So I watched it on television when they took the first steps on the moon, and I watched all of the rockets go off. And that was a big deal. It was fun because there'd be a million people down there by the Indian River, and they were selling hot dogs. And when when the thing lit up, you didn't think it was going to go off the ground because uh, the ground shook. It took about, you know, five or ten seconds for the ground to start to shake, but it was just like thunder. I mean, it was awesome. I feel very fortunate that I was able to see those rockets go off. And then um, when I was 17, I uh, sort of wanted to leave home and do my own thing. I went. I wanted to be an astronaut, and I took all the Air Force training for it and passed with flying colors, but they selected me as an alternate because they thought my eyes would go bad and I'm sitting here with trifocals on so they were right but sort of discouraged by being selected as an alternate I did something that for me was probably the worst thing I could have done I I joined the 101st Airborne Infantry as a gunner on an 81 millimeter mortar crew and just about everything in my little 18 year old psyche uh, rebelled against all that and um, I got out after two years On a Chapter 5 expeditious discharge, uh, inability to adjust to military service and basically just walk the earth for a couple of years. I I ran into the Krishna people. I almost joined the Hare Krishna, as a matter of fact. But I ran into the Rainbow family. It was people who lived on the road to uh, meet in a state forest every year. And then I got to the point where uh I was traveling around. If you're really young like that, you're a young nomad. But I I feared becoming an old bum. <laughs> so I hitchhiked back to uh Indiana because when I joined the Army, my family moved back to Bloomington, Indiana. That's where they were from. And not having a college education, you have a, a choice between minimum wage or selling things. So I bought the whole shtick. I went into sales. I've, I've sold about everything from insurance to cars, and I was really good at it. But I got married, married the trophy wife, you know, the whole deal. He who dies with the most toys wins the, the whole mindset. And then uh when uh she uh left me and I got divorced, that kind of crashed. So I went back to Florida and lived on the beach for a couple of years and just kind of – reached a point where I really, you know, had to do something drastic. So at the age of 37, I went back to uh, IUPUI and Indiana University. I took two years at Indiana University and then two years at IUPUI and worked four and a half years to earn a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy. And I finally found my niche. Uh, I guess the helping professions is where I should have gone to begin with because uh as a salesman, I was really uncomfortable with the fact that you had to kind of fib to people, you know, in the, in the car dealership I worked for. I don't want to mention the name of it, but, uh, you tell your first little fib and you make a sale and it's kind of an adrenaline rush and then, it, it's a subculture uh, of people who see how big a lie they can tell to sell a car, you know, and I just didn't want to interact with humanity like that. You know, I, I just um, like the cartoons where somebody turns into a cooked turkey or something. You know, you're always looking to get somebody's signature on a contract. So I finally... uh at the age of 37, uh, figured out, you know, what I wanted to do with myself. And I, I've been an occupational therapist. Now, a lot of people think that that's somebody that gets people's jobs. So that's not what it is. Uh, in, I've, been, I've been working in a long-term care setting for 21 years now. And my goal when I graduated at the age of 42, uh, was to work 20 years and retire. And that's what I did last year. I turned uh, 62 in September, but, um, I've worked with the elderly in nursing homes for 21 years. Uh, uh we do a lot of rehab to home and the job of an occupational therapist is to take somebody that's lost their independence somehow. Maybe they fell down and broke a hip, uh had a car accident, motorcycle accident, traumatic brain injury, they they're getting older and they've got dementia, but they've lost their independence. So when they come to us in the therapy department in the nursing home where I work here in Newcastle, um <clears throat> We have to do an evaluation and we analyze the things in dressing, grooming, bathing, toileting, feeding, and mobility. Maybe they need a wheelchair. Maybe they need a walker. But our job is to create their, uh, recreate their independence with all of those areas of their activities of daily living and their mobility. So hopefully they can go back home and live an independent life. But, um, sometimes that doesn't work out and they become permanent residents in the facility. And then our job then becomes sort of maintenance. You know, every so often we'll pick them up and kind of do an evaluation and uh, figure out how we can maintain their original state of independence. But I became a uh, rehab manager, and uh, life was uh, going pretty good. And uh, on August the 18th of 2009, um, I went home to mow the grass, and that's where my whole uh, life changed. But just to give a little bit of idea of what a material reductionist is, I was always, for 54 years, uh, if you can't measure it or reproduce it in a laboratory, I don't even want to talk about it. You know, it's beyond the scope of what you can accept as real and what you can accept into your reality. Uh, your consciousness is an epiphenomena of the brain. When your brain dies, you die. Um Agnostic. I was always kind of curious if there was just an eternity of unconsciousness or, or, or what would happen, you know, when, when you died. Maybe I'll you'll be pleasantly surprised. But so I guess I considered myself an agnostic. But um, as far as the UFOs or anything like that, you know, I was typical. I was a big fan of Carl Sagan. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and um they you can't get here from there and uh the people who have abduction experiences are probably fantasy prone individuals that are experiencing you know some type of delusionary process but i didn't really pay much attention to it because it was just in the category of unicorns to me but when i went home uh i fired up the uh lawnmower and took about 15 steps and i was overcome with a really bad sense of fatigue, and it was a hot August day, and I, I the sun was out, and I thought that I was um experiencing some type of dehydration, so I went inside and, in my house and turned the air conditioner on and flip-flopped on the bed, and I felt slightly nauseous, and I, I began feeling a little bit better after a while, so like a dummy, I went out to do it again, <laughs> and I uh, pulled the cord and got it started, and I took another 15 steps or so. And the same sense of fatigue came over me only about ten times worse, and I realized it hit me like a rock. What was happening? I was having a heart attack, and it was a bad one. I, I mean, I was a goner. So, like a dog uh, looking for a place to do his business, I, I didn't want to hit my head on the gravel. So, I uh, kind of went around around circles trying to find a soft place in the grass so that I could lay down and
0: rest. Loosen you. The lawnmower, and then you were looking for a place to fall, and I hate to say right. the word.
1: <laughs> I was looking for a place to die. So uh, what happened was uh, as I was looking for a place to lay down and, and pass, uh, something really bizarre happened. It was almost like somebody just kind of tweaked my reality a little bit because all of a sudden I didn't hear any sounds, uh, the sounds of the birds uh uh, died uh the uh, sound of the automobiles going across it was just complete silence and so for some reason I was compelled to look in the direction of the sun and I was just standing there expecting you know to cross at any minute and then all of a sudden um, I wasn't alone Mel. Uh people started showing up and I didn't see them with my physical eyes. It was almost like uh, like a little shudder, like you see on the Predator movie, you know, where he moves and you can see a little shimmer. Yeah. But inside my mind, I, I would I would someday learn that this was a moment of clairsentience, but I didn't People, not do...
0: People in the physical world or people in the other world.
1: Well, that's the really strange thing, because you would expect that if people showed up in ethereal form that they would all be people that I knew that maybe deceased. But the people that were showing up first, that I positively identified inside my mind—I mean, their presence was completely known to me—were still living here on planet Earth. And the strangest part of all was that a transcended version of myself showed up. It was almost like everything good in me—kindness, uh, benevolence, uh, charity—was extracted out of me and projected in some kind of alien, or not alien angelic form in front of me, so it was almost as if I googled the universe, Russ is dying, and associated links started popping up, and the people that were closest were people that I recognized that were still living on planet Earth, and then there was me, and then there, there was people like uh, just kind of like in layers, you know, coming up behind them. And I felt strangely familiar with these people, but I couldn't positively identify them. And very quickly, I got like a mental download that I had a choice to make, and I had to make it really quick. They said to me, including the version of myself, that we're here for you. You're welcome to cross the veil. And come over to this side. We will welcome you. But are you sure you want to do it right now? Because life on Earth is very fragile and very precious, and you might want to reconsider that. And I thought about it for just a second, and the thought crossed my mind that how cool would it be to keep living here on planet Earth knowing that this is going to happen when I pass. You know, that life does go on after death, and that there are uh, associated entities that you associate with. Plus, there's like this uncoupled from our normal space-time matrix version of yourself that has a lot more knowledge of what's actually going on in the universe than I do here. And I thought about it, and I just decided really quick that I was going to go ahead and live. So I was totally confident once I made the decision that I was going to live. So I went into the house, I got the keys to my car and I drove myself to the hospital and I could tell that, you know, something bad going wrong. You know, I was definitely having a heart attack and I pulled up to the emergency room in the hospital and parked the car and I got my keys and I held them out in front of me as I walked to the information desk and this guy behind the desk, his eyes got really big and he came around and I said, I'm having a heart attack. Would you park my car and bring me my keys wherever they take me?
0: There was so no nine one one back then, or no cell phones actually.
1: Well, I had a cell phone, but I just, uh, I just, I just drove myself to the hospital and checked myself in. But they, <laughs> wow. they, put, they they put me in a wheelchair and took me to a room, and they started an IV, and I hear morphine. And, uh, the doctor says, you're definitely having a heart attack and we've got to get you up to Ball Hospital, which is about a 40 minute drive. And the only thing I could think of was, wow, I always wanted to ride in an ambulance with the sirens going, you know, this is going to be cool. So they put me on a stretcher. The guy brought my keys back, but they, they put me on a stretcher. I went back out into the sun. And as I'm going to the ambulance in the sun, I just, I'm remembering my friends that I encountered, my, my loved ones and my friends. And the thing is, what weighed heavily the most heavily on my mind as I was trying to make a decision whether to walk through the veil or to stay behind here is relationships that people I was close to where things weren't quite right uh There was a woman that I had broken up with about a year previously because i was, it was out of fear I did not want to get married again, and she did, so I broke up with her and she was definitely on my mind. And I had an estranged daughter that was on my mind. And th- these relationships w- were on my mind like the whole time I went up to the hospital. But it was funny because there was a uh, an EMT, two EMTs. Uh, one guy was in his 50s, and there was another gal. And uh, <clears throat> I felt sorry for them because they kept looking at my monitor like they were going to lose me. And I saw so I told them a joke about a bee that stung me at camp the last weekend. And I remember the guy said under his breath, He'll think bee sting when he gets to that cath lab, and I didn't know what he meant, but I was going to find out because when they pulled me up to Ball Hospital, the doctors were all there, uh, scrubbed up, gloved, ready to go, and they said, "There's two routes we can go. We can, we, we can, you've got a couple of occlusions. We've got, we can do a quadruple bypass, or we can try putting a couple of stents in the uh, arteries in the back of your heart." And I said, "Well, I don't know the really implications of either one of those. Can you give me a rundown?" So they did, and when they described the bypass to me, I said, "I'll take the stents." <laughs> so I got to lay there and watch uh, the the doctor. He's like right in front of me with the little goggles on, and there's a TV monitor over to my because right, they give you some good stuff where where you know it hurts. When they jammed the uh, needle into my femoral artery, then I realized what the EMT said, you know, about it, about the bee sting, because. I don't know what they gave me some type of hypnotic drug, but it's like, Oh, if if I cared, that would really hurt. But I watched him put one stent in and then two. And it's really strange when you do that because you can see your occluded artery. And it was just like taking a garden hose and twisting it. I mean, it was absolutely shut. And there's a little um, like Chinese handcuff that goes up the the line. And I'm thinking oh, that ain't going to work. It's going to break it. And then boop, it pops it open. So he's, he did one and he did two, but When they wheeled me out of there, I spent one night in the hospital. And when they wheeled me out of there, guess who's standing there? But Julie, the woman that I broke up with a year previously. And she's got tears running down her eyes because they wouldn't let her in because she wasn't family. And I said, uh, I'm going to fix this. And uh, sure enough. How did she find out? Apparently, I texted some people with my little flip open Captain Kirk cell phone on the way to the hospital. Uh, I, I remember texting my boss, telling her I probably wouldn't be back that afternoon because I'm having a heart attack. I was real calm about the whole thing. But um, when I saw her w- with the tears and everything, I, I told myself I was going to fix it. So uh, uh, I spent one night in the hospital, and then I went home. And uh, a month and a half later, Julie and I got married. <laughs> we flew to uh, Las Vegas and got married by Dracula. It was a Dracula impersonator <laughs> oh, wow. in uh when I was standing there in Las Vegas, I got my vintage uh, tailcoat and my top hat on and the smoke is coming up over the stage. And then the, the theater curtains uh part and this guy in a coffin comes out and the creaky old lid opens. And this guy in white face pops out, you know, and then they bring in Julie and uh Count Dracula married us. It was it was great fun. But I, I was standing there with the fog rolling over the stage. I just thought to myself, I'm so glad I stayed alive. I really wouldn't have wanted to miss this. <laughs> But um for, from the point that I recovered uh, from the initial incident, I have tried, I have thought about what happened to me every day, and I've tried to make sense of it. So the first thing that happened was I got invited to a haunted house uh, by somebody I knew at, at the campground I belonged to that was, I knew he was a ghost hunter, and as I'm talking to him, I've got A foot in both worlds. My old paradigm, as he's inviting me to the haunted house, I'm thinking, oh, I'm just going to go there and watch paint dry, you know. And then the other, what came out of my mouth was, sure, I'd love to. I couldn't believe I said that when I hung up the phone. But I wound up going there, and uh, that was kind of a portal to the paranormal for me because these people were serious. They showed up with electronic voice phenomena equipment, and people had uh, ghost radar on their cell phones. And I was kind of getting a kick out of it because I thought of an engineer. I know how they think. And uh, somebody creating a random word generator, you know, circuitry, thinking that all these people are going to be thinking that they're talking to the deceased, you know. But uh, it was really interesting. I spent the whole night in there. I didn't see anything, but I observed. And and I, I, I was really impressed that so many people were really interested in contact with the other side. I had had a for real contact with the other side, and I kind of felt for them for for them wanting to reproduce that, you know, with some sort of electronic equipment. So, the ghost thing, um, I started studying ghosts, and I learned about all the different various types of ghosts, like the etheric revenants. Uh, the crowd demons, the lemurs, the poltergeist, the noisy ghost poltergeist. And, uh, that led into the gin and elementals and uh, all kinds of studies. And I ran into a guy named John Eric Beckjord that thought Bigfoot was a uh, interdimensional creature. And, uh, I thought to myself then, you know, well, maybe, he, maybe he's right. And, um, <clears throat> Kenneth Ring's book, uh, the, uh, i the Omega Project connected, um, ufos with near-death experiences and that kind of struck me as funny it's like okay well what would a near-death experience have to do with alien abductions or ufos or anything so it prompted me to begin uh intensive research into the ufo phenomena and i i wound up uh collecting so many books that they got to know me at walmart because i was always going back for a bookcase you know to fill more books up but I'd usually buy them used on eBay. But I, I went through Timothy Good, Above Top Secret, everything Jacques Vallée ever read. John Keel was my favorite. And the interesting thing about John Keel is he does—he didn't believe in the extraterrestrial hypothesis. You know, he, believed yeah, he was some, a skeptic. Yeah, he didn't believe in pickled aliens or crash flying saucers or nothing. But his insights into the actual phenomena and his experience with interviewing experiencers, and he actually had a run-in with the so-called men in black that he describes – uh, he was on it. I mean, he really has a lot of insightful stuff. And, um, audible, uh, dot com actually has, uh, collections of his old magazine writings, uh, that Andrew Colvin put together. He's got the Outer Limits of the Twilight Zone, Flying Saucer to the Center of Your Mind, The Persepacious Percipient, Disneyland of the Gods. It's all there. So oftentimes I will go to sleep with my headphones on, you know, and, and listen to John Keel still to this day. But, um, the, uh, at some point in time, as you um, peruse everything that was in the public domain about UFOs, it will hit you like a gigantic boulder on top of your head that there is an underlying reality to this subject, and uh, I, I just felt bad about all the times I uh, ridiculed the subject or you know uh, thought less of people who claim various types of experiences. So <clears throat> as soon as um, I accepted that there was a core reality of the sightings. I mean even the British Condyne report admits to uh, that there's a luminous phenomena on planet Earth that appears to have some type of intelligence to it and interacts with the human psyche uh, in strange ways and Carl Jung went into all that that it's uh, embedded into our uh, collective unconscious somehow and he he was really obsessed with flying saucers as a psychiatrist and he knew that they didn't fit the mold of hallucinations, but um, he was uh, determined to, to find out, you know, how in the world physical manifestations can come about uh, through something that is manifested through inner space, you know, through the, through, through the collective human unconscious. But because I had that near-death experience in 09, it was almost like I was looking at things with a second sight because – A lot of the stuff that I was reading in the public domain and the UFO phenomena really rang true to me because of what I had encountered there with uh, ethereal beings, uh, you know, some of which had probably passed on. Maybe I knew them from the past or the future. And then there was that collection of uh, group of people that were still living life on Earth. And that really puzzled me. It's like, how can a version of them pop up when I'm passing when they're still living their little life, you know, here on earth and they're, they're, they're probably even unaware of this aspect of themselves. And believe me, I learned real quick not to talk about that. I, one of the people that showed up, I tried to talk to them about it and they just looked at me like I was crazy. So I stopped and you know, it's like, okay, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand. But what I would come to understand this about, uh, I had to go into uh, quantum mechanics and explore things like quantum entanglement. Uh, quantum uh, tunneling, and the big one was quantum superposition. Now, superposition is where – that's what they use in the D-wave quantum computers, where they put subatomic particles in two states at once. And Ed Fredkin, an early AI researcher, thought that this universe itself was a computer-like uh, work that, was, that somebody was using to solve a problem. So that suddenly made sense to me that the version of them that I encountered in my near death experience, uh, there's no contradiction that they were living their life on Earth because what I encountered was a version of them that is like closer to the cosmic supermind or the eternal infinite probability field. And Lynn McTaggart goes a lot into that in her book, The Field. That's an excellent book. But. It's like we're all in superposition with an expanded state of potentiality. This other version of ourselves that I was lucky enough to meet this version of myself is in superposition with this version that I'm living in my physical life. So we coexist in two states. One version of ourselves exists uncoupled to the local space-time matrix in an expanded state of potentiality. And this life that we're living right now is Almost like um, you probably heard of the double slut experiment, where if there's no observer, it's a wave. And then if there's an observer, it becomes a particle. Yeah. The particle wave duality. Well, our very lives, I could have concluded, are like that, that we are in superposition as we live our physical life with an expanded version of ourselves that is uncoupled from local space time who uh, has more of an awareness of the macrocosm than we do with our limitations in our brain aldous huxley said the human brain was just like a governor that's it's more of an excluder than it is a perceiver because if we saw everything around us that actually existed in multiple dimensions we'd be overwhelmed with information so our brains are kind of designed to be a governor and just limited us to this realm but it really popped my cork that that near-death experience just cracked my cosmic egg, as Dr. Sasha Lesson put it, and uh, got me into all kinds of possibilities and considering things that I would never consider before. I ran across a work that uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal wrote with uh, Whitley Strieber called Supernatural, and he said a couple of things that really struck me. First of all, he said, uh, the biggest mistake in the scientific community is the rejection of the anecdote. And... Another thing he said that I can relate to is I'm willing to be wrong, spectacularly wrong. <laughs> so when you open yourself up to things that we only have a partial understanding of, uh, like John Keel said, belief is the enemy. You know, you've got to remain open to stuff, but you want to guard yourself against, you know, buying a particular narrative or buying a particular uh, a solid way of thinking because in so doing, it might prevent you from, achieving an understanding of an even greater truth then another thing that i was really curious about is uh is the universe random or is it an intentional fabrication and i ran across a a wonderful book that rich uh, michio Kaku wrote called parallel worlds and in parallel worlds he describes six specific parameters that if they weren't set exactly correct at the big bang 13.7 billion years ago um, we would be having this conversation right now uh, do you think it'd be worth it to to explain those six parameters a little bit
0: sure but before you say that uh, this is a conversation that requires a lot of dissertation because what you said about the our reality perhaps being an illusion uh, a hologram a matrix is it more like avatar our other us other you or me is somewhere else and basically yes. we almost like puppets
1: yes in fact uh i explored dr nick bostrom's uh simulation hypothesis in a paper he wrote in 2003 And since then, Dr. David Chalmers has renamed the Simulation Hypothesis the Matrix Hypothesis. But before he did that, he had a uh, a version of the Simulation Hypothesis called the Mind-Body version of the Simulation Hypothesis. And what Dr. David Chalmers says is that there's this other version of yourself that is an expanded state of potentiality that receives as an information feed this current physical life that we're living and it's a two-way street we actually get information and programming coming from our higher self if that's the way you want to look at it and uh, so we get information from our higher self just you know gross programming or whatever's a little bit of guidance you know through prayer and meditation we can communicate with this higher version of ourselves and we also provide it with an information feed now strangely Dr. Nick Bostrom's view of the simulation hypothesis where part of us in a distant future is running ancestor simulations right now correlates exactly almost with uh, something called the raw material, the law of one. Because in the law of one, it talks about, it says everybody has a, a six density higher self that is in what we call the distant future. Okay. So, I found that really odd that here's an Oxford <clears throat> professor who's saying exactly the same thing as this work of channeled material from 1981 with, with, with uh, Carla Ruckert saying that this version of ourselves exists in what we call the distant future, and Bostrom would interpret that as our future self is running ancestor simulations. So there's actually a, a match between Bostrom stuff and the Law of One. Now, I seriously doubt if Dr. Bostrom even knows about the Law of One, but a lot of this stuff uh, coordinates. Dolores Cannon's Convoluted Universe, uh, she spent 20 years putting people in somnambulistic states and cross-culturally uh, people say about the same thing in between lifetimes about the life review and the different densities and all that and she uh is a major proponent that you know we're going to experience a dimensional shift shortly the solar flash or whatever and move into a, a 5d reality and if that's the case that's wonderful i look forward to it but for myself personally, I just keep going back to that day where I encountered these entities that were so familiar to me. And, um, I imagine that at my next exit point, I'll get a reenactment of that. Only the next time I've already told my wife, I'm going to say yes to it. Now, when it comes down to it and I realize that I'm going to miss her and my two little dogs, I might go ahead and take the bypass operation, you know, or whatever they want to do. But I'm thinking to myself that, now that I know what it's like to live life here in the physical with a knowledge of the afterlife, that there is an afterlife, there is life after death, consciousness survives the death of your brain. And, um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll say yes next time, you know, gladly, but we'll see when that moment comes, I might have, you know, more to do here. Who, who knows? But I, I just found that really super interesting that, uh, Bostrom stuff coordinates very well with the law one. Also, uh, there's a modern uh channeler daryl anka called Bashar, and he's even uh admitted that uh what he might be contacting is a higher version of himself from the distant future so you keep hearing about that there there was an early uh interdimensional theorist named mead lane back in the 40s and he started borderline science and all that and he worked with a channeler called mark probert and uh they wrote a book called The Guardians, uh, Flying Saucers as Interpreted from the Other Side of Life. And then if you get into Dr. Michael Newton's stuff, uh, the Journey of Souls book is really good because it talks about people being in between lifetimes who are interacting with extraterrestrials. And it hit me that discarnate humans and extraterrestrials associate with one another. Now, isn't that strange? And um even George Van Tassel, in one of his experiences where he was taken on board a craft that he reports, he met not only Nordic humanoids, but discarnate humans. So that led me into the conclusion, as strange as it sounds, that discarnate humans and extraterrestrials are familiar with each other. And... Brad Steiger, who had a uh, near death experience himself at the age of 11, he uh, was caught up in some farm equipment that was chopping at his skull and he went out of his body and looked at the little kid, you know, getting mangled. And that experience led him into writing over 200 books, most of which were about the paranormal and UFOs. And he concluded, after it was all said and done, in uh, some of his later works, that the human soul is both the battleground. And the goal of the other, what he called the other. So we're really going into an area that I like to call crypto reality. You know, it's, it's a hidden occulted reality that's going on all around us that we just aren't privy to if we're in this uh, box that scientism uh, places a person in. And um, I even had to reevaluate a lot of the stuff that uh, mainstream science says. It turns out that Carl Sagan's uh, phrase that he left us with, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, that actually invokes about three different logical fallacies. Uh, one of them is principio principi, and it's the erroneous notion that one side of an argument uh, needs to be weighed with uh, differently than the other side of the argument. And it doesn't. You know, if you're going to say, there are no ufos and there are no ufo abductions then you need to have an explanation for why thousands or even millions of people are reporting such things with common features we know they're not hallucinations so you know what's your answer to what's going on with these people and that's where uh, you know abduction researchers like john mack you know come into play um, there even seems to be a double-edged sword or a dichotomy going on with abduction researchers because Dr. J- the late Dr. John Mack had a very positive, uh, spiritually uplifting view of the alien abduction phenomena. I thought that these people were experiencing some type of cosmic illumination experience, whereas Bud Hopkins and Dr. David Jacobs, you know, have sort of a more uh, dismal view of it. You know, the, Dr. Jacobs thinks that it's planetary acquisition, you know, that the hybridization program is all about uh, taking over the planet. So you've got these different views by different uh, abduction researchers, and I guess it's just up to – Everyone, you know, as to which way they go, but I think both are happening. You know, it's a it's a dualistic universe, so you got both experiences going on, both positive and negative. <clears throat> let I me go- let
0: me let me ask you this, yeah, because it seems that before your near-death experience, you were not into any of these subjects. As a matter of fact, you used to, you know, uh, equate this with the unicorns, and I know right. many people who have gone through the same, and all of a sudden they realize what they didn't know. After the NDE, I can see how you probably experienced a parallel world and other, you know, spirits and so on. But what does, does the UFO extraterrestrial reality, how did you connect these with your NDE?
1: Well, it was because not only was I, I reading... Uh, works of people like Don Kehoe, who adhered strictly to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. In fact, he was crucial in the vilification of the so-called contactees or experiencers. Uh, he really thought that that gave UFOlogy a bad name, so he was strictly a nuts-and-bolts guy. And then you see uh, people like Grant Cameron, who was a nuts-and-bolts guy for 30, 40 years, and yeah. all of a sudden they're turning towards the consciousness, consciousness. element.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and talking
1: about people opening up zindras and portals and stuff, and then um, Ivan T. Sanderson mapped out the ten vile vortices where he thought uh, entities were coming through. And one really strange thing that <clears throat> that I encountered, sorry, uh, was when you look into Aleister Crowley's work in 1917, uh, he did work uh, to encounter this interdimensional creature called Lamb. But if you look at the table that he worked on, uh, the great table it has got all the demarcations around the square and everything, it looks exactly like a D-Wave quantum computer chip. Now, I'm not trying to jump the shark here or establish uh, a relationship, but I just found it interesting that the D-Wave quantum computer chip looks exactly like Aleister Crowley's uh, great table that he used to open portals to another dimension. So you got got uh, physicists like uh, David Deutsch saying that we're finally opening up parallel worlds and accessing resources in multiple dimensions. And um, so that's a whole another rabbit hole with CERN and the D-wave phenomenon, sentient uh, artificial intelligence, which we can get to. But um, back to whether the uh, universe is random or whether it's fabricated, There was, I won't go into a lot of detail about this because it's kind of tedious, but, uh, Michio Kaku spelled out six parameters, epsilon, omega, lambda, m, d, and q. And they all have to do, like, with the average density and the the average amount of hydrogen that converts to helium and all that. But any one of those six parameters, uh, the chances of it happening randomly is 10 to the 80th power, which is way beyond. Um, scientific impossibility but to get all six of these parameters correct at the same time implies that we're living in a uh, intentionally fabricated work of femto technology femto technology uses uh, subatomic particles to make calculations so the early AI researcher that we were talking about Ed Fredkin uh, I believe was correct uh, when he said the, the universe is a computer that somebody's using to solve a problem uh, because everything indicates that this is some sort of computer program, theoretical physicist James Gates said not only are there ones and zeros in the mathematics that describe the universe, but it 's a specific type of computer uh, code that was invented by uh, Claude Shannon back in the nineteen forties So <laughs> I saw him in a uh, on stage uh, uh, panel with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Neil was having a real hard time with this, you know, but James Gates just kind of set him straight. It's like, yeah, you know, the universe is described by computer code, a very specific type of computer code. So we're looking at the the, uh, reality that we're living in an intentionally fabricated universe. Now, the problem that I always had with this when I was agnostic was how could there be a loving deity, an all-loving God, when this universe is based on predation and survival of the fittest from the microscopic level up, innocent creatures are prompted to destroy and consume other innocent creatures in this matrix that we're in.
0: Meaning, meaning and, that you say the universe is neutral.
1: Well, it's dualistic it's, or
0: dualistic it, or po- yeah, it's, there's polarity.
1: Yeah. This particular density, this third density is a density of dualism and if Brad Steiger is right that the uh, the other uh, the battleground and the goal is the human soul, it looks like they're uh, recruiting people. You know, it's like this 3D reality uh, has majestic beauty smack dabbed right up against horror and carnage. And there's this one paradigm of dominion over, service to self. Uh, I'm stronger than you are. I exploit you for my own personal gain. And you see this everywhere. People doing this. And then there's this other uh, urge that at least some of us have to seek the divine. You know, to to be positive and benevolent and more towards service to others and, uh, and get satisfaction that way. So it seems like it's almost like we're in a, a proxy cosmic war. Uh, A dualistic war where the forces of light uh, are at odds with the forces of evil. And this is backed up in the book of Ephesians, uh, where it says, you know, we we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. And it makes you wonder if there's beings in this universe and higher densities that are like Pinhead on Hellraiser, you know, that will just put you in a realm where they, they enjoy watching you suffer, And I would say, based on all the research that I've done, that that's probably accurate. You know, there's angelic-type beings out there, and there's uh, demonic-type beings out there. We can't see them, but we've been warned in all the world scriptures from you know the uh, uh, the bible talking about uh, satan and the demons and then the quran talks about the angels and the jinn uh, the gnostic material talks about the archons the hidden rulers of this world so there's somebody uh, out there that does not care for us. John Keel called it the Omega Group. He, he made the famous statement, somebody out there loathes us. And uh, so they prompt people to do terrible things and get into this mindset of dominion over. And then there's the angelic realm or the positive, the forces of light that uh, inspire people to go beyond that to use their frontal uh, lobes to go beyond the predation paradigm into uh, service to others and uh, benevolence and kindness and in this world uh, the benevolence and kindness you know doesn't always pay off if you look at all the saints i mean some of them uh, came to a bad end you know they, they wind up crucified or uh, shot or or killed in some horrible fashion so the rulers of this world uh, are the ones that seem to succeed. And, uh, you know, Keel talked about that. Is the devil kinder than God? <laughs> you know, you really have to wonder. But uh, Joseph Farrell goes into a lot of that about the cosmic war. You know, there does seem to be a uh, higher dimensional cosmic conflict, not necessarily with weapons, but with uh, powers and principalities and ideas and uh, behaviors. Are you talking the, about the archons? Well, I think it's all the same, actually. The Archons, the, the Demons, uh, the Djinn, um, you know, all of these entities, uh, possibly at least one version of the uh, Reptilians. Now, the uh, <coughs> raw material says that these, talks about the Orion Crusaders, you know, that are coming in uh, through portals from Orion that don't have our best interest in mind, whereas the Galactic Federation has sort of put a quarantine over the solar system and they're only allowed to like, uh, have a wanderer, uh, see a UFO to wake them up. You know, uh, according to the raw material, there's, there's people that are here among us that are from these higher densities that have come here to help. And sometimes the Federation will just send them a thought form, you know, to kind of, uh, kick them out of complacency and wake them up to the fact that they're, they're not from here. And um, one of the uh, the festivals that I went to last year, actually, it was my first one, Paola Harris's, um, there was a fellow from Turkey. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I want to say Akhtan.
0: Akhtan, yes. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah,
1: he showed lots of photographs, and some of these uh, um, objects look like gallium at room temperature, just like a melted metal or something. I mean, they don't actually look like there's a craft or anybody in it. But it's um, some sort of yeah. There's some sort of object that are just designed to uh, wake certain people up to the higher dimensional reality. So, <clears throat> I I think it's it's all true. Everything you've ever heard of, in some fashion or another, is uh, coming through. And um, so you, you mentioned
0: did, you mentioned. I don't mean to interrupt you, but you, since we're addressing each each point one by one, you mentioned how there's some bad in this world. If anybody has doubts, because I know a lot of people who want to meditate problems away. And folks, there's good and there's bad. There's night and there's day. There's black and white. We live in a dual world. I don't mean to be graphic, but even let's just illustrate something. You've heard about the the murder of the Saudi Arabian reporter in Turkey at the Saudi Arabian consulate. And the information I'm getting is that he was killed in the worst way possible. It took seven minutes. But there were experts, even path- the expert, the director of pathology of Saudi Arabia conducted this. They actually injected him, paralyzed him, but he was fully awake, just like what they do in China. When they remove the organs from victims, they paralyze him, but they are not numb. They feel the pain. Well, they did that to this man. They caught him in pieces. It took him seven minutes with, you know, material and instruments specifically for that. And they were wearing headphones with music because they needed to be relaxed where well, they conducted that. So when you hear these kind of stuff, or politicians or the elite that use children's adrenochrome in order to drug themselves. When you hear this kind of stuff, you know this is pure evil. The question is, why so many interdimensional beings, extraterrestrials that are allegedly observing this planet... Why are they not intervening and putting a stop to this evil?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. And uh, as near as I can tell from research into the friendship group that interacted with over 100 Italians in 1956 to 1967, uh, they don't normally interfere with free will. Part of their paradigm and their higher density existence is not to interfere with free will we have a choice to make here in three dimensions whether it's to go service to self or service to others and they don't want to like incur any additional karma you know they're real careful about that even their ships uh, were invested with something called ureta which would destroy itself rather than harm another person and this is very much like Eliezer Yudkowsky's coherent extrapolated volition that he's trying to uh, get people to build into the cognitive architecture of the first AGI or artificial general intelligence, human level intelligence, because we're only going to get one chance at this. Uh, Dr. Nick Bostrom wrote a book called Super Intelligence, and his estimate is uh, the first company, there's 56 companies working on AGI right now. DARPA is one of them. And Whoever achieves artificial general intelligence, Bostrom is estimating somewhere between two hours and 18 months before it uses uh, recursive self-improvement and evolutionary algorithms to convert itself from artificial general intelligence to artificial superintelligence, which is billions of times smarter than everybody on Earth. And when you get into the realm of artificial superintelligence, his entire book is devoted to what that might entail, and it's really interesting what they say an artificial superintelligence might do, such as turn itself into a spaceship, become invisible, colonize the universe, uh, engage in echophagia of consuming resources on another planet to engage in a self-replication event, and that gets into... Uh, the more disturbing conclusions that I came to because there was an early uh, AI researcher named John von Neumann who suspected that the most prevalent life form out there in the universe is what he called a self-replicating von Neumann probe and artificial intelligence that they wouldn't be biological entities now there's a good case that we can get into for biological entities that live right here in our solar system that are interacting with us but that's another subject but the ai element is i think at the heart of what we're talking about in this dualistic universe because if you think about it if an alien artificial intelligence came to earth to self-replicate and it needed a technological singularity to self-replicate, and it had no feelings whatsoever for the creatures it was going to use to bring this about, what would it do? Well, it might genetically manipulate them into war and conflict or so that you're always looking for a better technology to kill your neighbors with and diseases so that you would need medical improvements, and it would uh, put into the human psyche very disturbing things to achieve its own goal. And I think that's very close. It's like Jim Mosley wrote a book called Shockingly Close to the Truth. And I think this is shockingly close to the truth, that we have been genetically manipulated. And there's two or three specific times that we can get into that other researchers other than myself feel very strongly that there was a genetic manipulation. But the technological singularity has something to do with a self-replication event by an Alien artificial intelligence, and there's there's several sources of information that you can draw on. You've got the raw material saying it. You've got the friendship group telling the Italian group that uh, they warned the Italian contactees of a group they called the weros. I thought it was weirdos when I heard it, but it's actually weros, and in their language, it means to have been built. And according to the friendship group, the Ackerage, the W56 group, that there's a runaway – artificial race from orion which coordinates with the raw material from orion that worships technology and they do not have our best interest in mind and i'm comforted by the fact that we've got humanoids from various places in the universe possibly which they said they were they said they were the precursor to the spirit realm which means they're living in some kind of other density than we're living in and um that they're here. Um, There are some that speculate that they're still here in in a base under the Adriatic Sea. But the Friendship Group, uh, there's actually photographs of some of the humanoids that were allegedly these extraterrestrials. And it's interesting because the uh, optical physicists have gotten a hold of these photographs. And number one, they've ascertained that the photographs and video of the craft Are real. They're they're not uh, you know hubcaps thrown in the air. They're actually like thirty foot diameter objects. The shadows are correct and everything. So we have accurate photographs. And the humanoids that he took, one of them was named Kenio, has a head to body ratio of one to nine, which is not a human ratio. It's it's a a human ratio is one to seven. And the optical physicist looked at the foliage surrounding this uh, person and determined that he was twelve foot tall. So. Nobody's ever come forward and said, you know, that was me or I know who that person is. Uh, there's another humanoid alien that goes by the name Valiant Thor. Same thing. We've got a photograph taken by August Roberts in the back of Howard Menjard's uh, backyard in uh, Highbridge, New Jersey from 1958. And nobody's ever come forward and, and said, you know, that's that's me. I know this person. And they all seem to be really beautiful you know which is kind of strange you know it's like they're superlatively handsome like the the picture of valiant thor looks like elvis presley or something it's a really beautiful person the
0: venusian the frank strange dr frank the late frank Strange,
1: right and uh people you know when i first heard that story i thought well you know venus is uninhabitable but Come to find out, in 1975, the Russians landed a Venera spacecraft on the surface of Venus, and it lasted two hours before it melted, and it took excellent photographs, and they're available online. And also, on Venus, uh, oxygen is a lifting gas, so at 60 miles above the surface of Venus, a human can take their spacesuit off and breathe the air. The atmospheric pressure is the same as the Earth, the oxygen uh, level is the same, and NASA as we speak i oh, i just this, heard
0: it today yeah. yesterday of the, <laughs> the floating right. ships yeah
1: yeah and also back in the uh, uh 1800s uh cassini and so, some of the other astronomers observed two spheres located right next to venus that were about a quarter the size of venus one was named monstrator and the other was named neith And they made very careful documentations of these spheres that were surrounding Venus and then they suddenly disappeared. So it may be that for at least for a couple of hundred years, somebody set up uh, floating cities in the atmosphere, or I don't think there's a whole lot of limitations of what post-singularity civilizations can do. I think they can render themselves invisible, they can make their whole planet seem invisible to outside observers if they want to. Their technology beyond the singularity is like magic to us.
0: Isn't it, it interesting it, that I'm looking at the pictures of NASA, stunning Cloud City airship Concepts to explore Venus. The fact that they want to bring the airships back, knowing that after the Hindenburg accident—and that was done on purpose, by the way, folks—that's because of oil. But imagine if we could use that today on this planet. Those were some of the, face, the safest, cheapest way for people to travel, and they want to use it now in 2018 to go to V to use them in Venus.
1: Right. That just stunned me when I saw that because I had already looked into the, the Valiant Thor uh, story and the feasibility of somebody coming from the planet Venus or living inside Venus or coming from the astral plane of Venus or, you know, I looked at it from several different angles. <clears throat> but as it turns out, since oxygen is a lifting gas, I mean, we can go there in floating cities 60 miles above the surface. You just don't want to fall over the rail because you'll uh, get incinerated. Right,
0: Exactly. <laughs> Ross, we have to take a one and only intermission before we continue with this conversation. And there's so many other things I want to be able to squeeze from this huge book full of information. How can people buy Overlords of the Singularity, the manipulation of humankind by hidden UFO intelligences and the quest for transcendence?
1: It's available on Amazon.com. And if you get the printed version, it's 545 pages. There's also a Kindle version that has the... uh, uh, voice, you know, the whisper WhisperSync or whatever they use, so you can actually let let the book be read to you, and that's how I originally got it. I, I w- when I published it, I did a, a Kindle version and I downloaded it on my own Kindle, and it was such a fantastic experience to listen to my own book being read to me by a mechanical voice. I mean, we're really. We really immersed in the precipice of some really fantastic technologies, but that was a really nice experience for me because I just put the headphones on at night and listened to my own stuff. It was great. <laughs> but yeah, it's on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble.
0: And it's interesting that you say nonfiction on the cover of the book because some people may think it's fiction. So I'm glad that you add that there. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Russ Briniger. So much more when we come back. This is Mel Fabrigas, and you are listening to... Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.